It is fun to be up here and have the opportunity to preach and to open God's Word with you guys. It has been, yeah, three years. And the Lord has taught me much through those three years of serving with Cross Life. And I've seen a lot of old faces come and go and a lot of new faces now, which is fun. A question, who is the greatest influence in a child's life? Is it not the child's parents? But how often do children disobey their parents? How many times are they told not to do something and then they go and do it? How many times do they have to be told again and again to not do it before they actually don't do it? Imagine with me, I'm sure you guys have seen situations where you see a child is told, don't touch that or don't do that, and their parents turn their back. What does the child do? It goes and grabs it. Or what is a child's favorite question to ask? Why? Why don't you want me to touch that? Okay, so a parent explains, why? Okay, explains again, why? Parents will tell their children not to do something to protect them. Don't touch the fire. What are they going to go do? Touch the fire. They're going to be hurt. They're going to learn. But the question is, when are they going to learn to trust their parents? So a similar way, we as Christians are learning. We're learning what it means to have a life in Christ. We get asked questions, we ask questions. What do you hold as absolute truth? By what standard do you evaluate things in your life? Who do you trust? Who do you cling to? These are all questions we need to ask ourselves. Because if we don't, then how will we answer what is truth? Who am I able to trust? What is my firm foundation? Because if we don't learn that, if we don't <coughs> seek to know what is truth, as defined by Scripture, the world is going to tell us what is truth. It's going to tell us truth is relative. It's what you define it to be. And how do we walk this life then? What is it pleasing to your eyes? What is enjoyable? And in our study of 1 Corinthians, we've seen how the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are opposed to one another. That they do in no way meld together. And so tonight, we're, we're kind of coming to a conclusion. We're kind of coming to an end where he brings a lot of these different points that have been a burden on his heart. And he brings them together. So in 1 Corinthians, we'll see that Paul, acting as the father of the church in Corinth, will give two warnings 
about having wisdom according to this age. But before we jump in, just to, to engage our minds again with the context with which we are in, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23. But at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 3, we see Paul calls them men of the flesh. You should be of the spirit, but yet you're not. In verse 1, he says, But brothers, but I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This is who you were. And then in uh, verse 4, he again says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul then challenges them, challenges them as ministers. There is one goal, and that they are fellow workers, which he says that in verse 9, that we are laboring together for this goal. And we're just fellow workers, nothing more. It is God who gives the growth. And we've looked at these passages in the uh, the men that have preached them have done excellent. He then goes on to, to describe the church and the work that is being done. And he uses the illustrations of God's field, God's building, God's temple. And then in verse 17, uh, pardon me, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You have God's spirit living in you. So the question is, are you living according to the spirit? Because Derek did an excellent job back in chapter 2. Of, are we living by the spirit? Because in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand him, because they are spiritually discerned. Are you living according to the Spirit or according to the flesh? This has been the whole struggle we've seen in these first three chapters according to the flesh, according to the spirit, the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of God. So this is important to remember as we dive in. Now the first point being, the first warning that Paul gives is that they are not to be deceived. Paul says this in verse 18 of chapter 3. Let no one deceive himself, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So he says, let no one deceive himself. Paul is giving a command here. Why is he giving a command? Isn't it most often because that's what the person is already doing? If you cut yourself, well, you shouldn't have cut yourself. It doesn't help. But here, Paul is giving a strong 
Do not be deceived because you're already being deceived. Don't do this. Stop it. Then he goes on and says, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, which there are, there are people who are thinking this, and this, to set this in the context, this is in the church. This isn't out in the world. There are those in the church who are thinking that they are wise in this age, among you, among you in the church. We were just in that context of talking about God's temple and that the Spirit dwells in you. Yet, there are those among you that think that he is wise in this age, that he is wisdom of this age. So he, he's warning, do not deceive yourselves. And then the next command he, he gives is let him become a fool that he may become wise. So what is he talking about? Why? And if you haven't been with us through the study, this has been a reoccurring theme throughout all of these three chapters of God's wisdom versus God's or human wisdom. That the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. So what are they doing? They're deceiving themselves. They are acquiring, teaching, they're listening to things that are opposed to Christ, that are pleasing to their ears. We know from 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Paul is giving this command. He's admonishing Timothy here. He says, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. This is what they'll do. Paul even, over in Ephesians, says the same thing. Again. Uh, Ephesians 4.14, he says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's, do not be deceived here. Even if the wisdom of this age in that eloquence, one speaking with eloquence, one persuading people to follow him, He's saying, don't do this. Why? Let him become a fool that he may become wise. So this, this seems not right. Why would he become a fool so that he may become wise? Let him become a fool to the world, to this age, so that he may become wise unto salvation. What is... How do you become wise? How do you become a fool? This is what we looked back, back in chapter 1. Matt preached on this. Verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is a power of God. This is foolishness to the world. Why would your Messiah come and be crucified? That this is foolishness to the world? The cross, in fact, is folly to, to wisdom humanly conceived. But it is God's folly. Folly that at the same time is his wisdom and power. And we've seen this throughout 1 Corinthians. Okay, what is God's folly? What is considered foolishness to the world? First, you have his message, which is the crucified Messiah, which we saw in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 1. The recipients, the Corinthian believers, which is verses 26 through 31, that why would these lowly people, why would Christ send Paul to them, that they could hear the message. Why would he care about them? These believers? <laughs> and then Paul's preaching, which he himself admits, okay, I did not come in lofty speech or wisdom, but I proclaim to you the testimony of God. And I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That this is a message. That this is what needs to be proclaimed. So, in chapter 3 here, he said, Do not be deceived. Do not deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. That it's foolishness to the world this message of the cross that Christ would be crucified. So he goes on in verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly or foolishness with God. This in fact is what it is. It is the wisdom of this world is folly with God which he said back in chapter 1 also, he says in chapter 1, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's foolishness to the world. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. This is really important because he's connecting back with chapter 1. In verse 20 he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? <coughs> that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. That the gospel would be proclaimed. That Jesus Christ crucified would be proclaimed. And that this is opposed to the world. And Paul just doesn't leave it there. He goes on to quote from the Old Testament. He says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. 
And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The first quotation is from Job 5, 13. And he, he pulls it and he says, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And he uses this word, catches, which is, has a very vivid image. It's one who is a hunter, who is stalking his prey. He's seeking to catch him. So he sets a trap and then lures him into it and catches him and grasps him. The same can be said for the wise. They think that they are smarter than God, that they can outsmart God in their cunningness, that they, through every situation, can get out of it, that they can turn it to their own gain. But God catches the wise in their craftiness. He wraps them up in it. He grasps them. So he uses this again to re-emphasize that the that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. That before God, what we think is wise, what we think is great, is really foolishness. That before him, it crumbles. It is nothing. And then the Lord, the second quotation, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The Lord knows the thoughts, the intentions of the wise. That they are futile. They are useless. They are vain. They're godless. They're self-centered. So do not be deceived. This is what he's getting at. Coming back to, do not be deceived. This is what people are pursuing. If you would, turn over to Romans 1. In here, Paul again addresses those who think they would be wise. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. He says, for, all they, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God of images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they were claiming to be wise unto salvation, but they came, became fools. They did not honor God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile. They became useless, vain, godless in their thinking. So back in 1 Corinthians... This is what is building to that wisdom of this world, of this age. What they say is wise, that it is foolishness with God. 
but that this folly that we believe, that we hold to, that, that we as a church hold to, that it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And as last week, that Christ will build His church, that we can stand in that. So do not be swayed by the wisdom of this world. Do not fall in love with its wisdom and claims to be wise. Do not follow a teacher just because his words are lofty or filled with wisdom or appear to be wise. Because are we not taught by the Spirit through these teachers? So who do we follow? Who do we trust? Which we get into the second warning that Paul gives, which is not to boast in men. That they are not to boast in men. That there is no humanly wisdom in these men. Verse 21 says, So then, let no one boast in men. Showing a conclusion of this. That no man can have wisdom in and of himself. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can have wisdom. And nothing else. So he's saying, let no one boast. For all things are yours. Why would Paul command them not to boast in men? What men would they be boasting in? We see earlier in the chapter, in verse 4, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are they not being merely human? They're exalting, they're boasting, they're raising above all others and saying, this is who I follow. Why are they not boasting in one another? What should be the mindset of a minister? Is it not what verse 5 says? He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. That this is, this is how we are to view men. This is how we are to view workers of ministry. The workers of the ministry. That they are gifts to the church. Which we've looked at, which we know from Ephesians 4, that God has given the apostle, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers and shepherds to equip the saints for the working of the ministry. That these are God's gifts to the church for the building up of the body of the church. But why does he say not to boast? And they, it's, they're taking pride in these men whom they are following. They're exalting them above God. But yet, Paul has labored and says, but these are just workers for the ministry. The, the Lord has assigned a task to each. 
So what is opposed to boasting? Is it not humility? That this is what you can't have humility with boasting. It is opposed. So then, what is it going to be of the church? Will it not be divided? Can you have unity if everyone is boastful? Because there is no humility in boasting. This has been Paul's labor and heart from the beginning of the letter. We see this back in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you have be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What do I mean that to each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? That boasting disrupts unity. And that we cannot, as a church, be unified. If there is boasting and saying, no, I follow Paul. No, I follow Paulos. What is the purpose of unity? Is it only to have one mind? Or to be focused on our crucified Savior? What are we being unified over? A.W. Tozer says this, 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned. Not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What is our focus? What is the purpose? And that's why he says, so let no one boast in men. That these are merely, they're men that God has assigned a task. And so then Paul explains, what, what has he given? For all things are yours. He has given all things to the church. for the building up of the body. So what are, all, what are all these things? He goes on in verse 22. He says, Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He again repeats at the end of this that all are yours, re-emphasizing that he has given these. The first three here Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, Cephas being Peter. He's given these teachers to the church. He's given them to equip the saints 
who will then do the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. That they would strive and have unity of mind. He's giving these examples, these all things. This demonstrates the pettiness and absurdity of the Corinthians quarreling. That they would say, no, I follow Paul. No, I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. He has given them all to the church. To us. Then he goes on and says, the world or life, or death. That He has given the world, the whole physical world, that it is ours to go, to proclaim truth, that we can be here. That He has given life, the breath with which we live, and even death. That He gives death, that we as believers can look towards death. That we will be with Christ. Paul even says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Then he says, or the present or the future. What is happening now and what is yet to come. That we can look forward to the coming kingdom. He's saying, all are yours. All belong to you. But then he comes back in verse 23 and says, and you are Christ. You belong to Christ. And this is which the identity, what is foolishness to the world. That you are Christ. Romans 8. Before that, I'll read Romans 8, 16 and 17. But in this, that you are Christ. This is your inheritance. This is your identity. That because of Christ's death on the cross, that we can have life in Him. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That this is who we are. That you belong to Christ. That if you repent of your sins and seek after Him, that you have died with Christ and it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. If you belong to the church, if you are a part of the church, this is who you are. Not to make you prideful, but that you would be humble, that you belong to Christ, that you are in submission to Him. Such as Christ is God's. Christ belongs to God. That Jesus Christ as His Son is in submission to God the Father. 
And in the same way, uh, if you would turn with me to Romans 8. God in Christ has given us all things. And in this, there is great assurance that we can have confidence, that we can know what is true. That the cross would be magnified in our lives. What is considered foolishness to the world. I'll begin in Romans 8, verse 31. In this, to see what the, this magnificent truth. It says, what then shall we say? Is God for, for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, us up, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That he has graciously given us all things. That the ultimate thing that he gave was his son. Going on in verse 33, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That this is what we look forward to. That this is what we have hope in. To, in. And so here, giving these warnings, do not be deceived. That there is no wisdom in this world. That we need to look to the cross, which is folly to the world. That we would not boast in men. That they are just instruments that God uses. So, what do we cling to when we're told what is true? When we go through life, how do we look at things do we boast in men? Do we exalt the man over the message? Because there's many men I appreciate that I've listened to. Pastor Brian being one of them. Who I've listened to for many years. Who I've listened to online, John Piper. Stephen Lawson. Many of these men who are faithful preachers. But am I following Christ... Am I joining and imitating Paul? Or am I exalting the man? Am I saying, I follow? But this is what we can have confidence in, that it is Jesus Christ crucified. And when we look back on our life, 
how can we know what is true? And it is by knowing God's word. Recently, I've been listening to The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom and was really challenged by how she ended their time in the concentration camp. And I was just listening while cutting hay in a swather. And this just really struck me. She was going on talking about how they were at Ravensbrook, which is a woman's labor camp. Her sister, Betsy, her health was failing. But yet their trust in God through all of this, her hope was not in this world. She was thinking and pondering about what, what can be done after the war. How can we reach all of these lost people? They began thinking about what is a pl- about a place for healing after the war? Which Corey then, after the war, after the fact, did start one there in Germany. She actually refurbished a German concentration camp. But while they were in this concentration camp, just before Betsy died from her health, she said, There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. But just to hear their story, they went from concentration camp to concentration camp. They went to two different ones. And they had a Bible, which they hid. And they cherished. And they held on to. And that's what they loved. And that God provided the strength. That God provided for them. And that is what they clinged to. Going on through the story, Corey then came back to Holland. And she tried to go back. Before she was captured, she worked in the underground. She tried to go back to that. And she basically almost blew a whole operation because she forgot she couldn't mention names. God gave her the strength to do that. She trusted the Lord. But that we would cling to the cross. That we would look unto the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That that would be our focus. What is folly to the world? That we, we are not to be men and women wise in this age. Not that we can't be, but that's not our focus. That God is with us through this all. I'll close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this evening, Lord, that we can exalt in your name. Lord, that in all things 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Lord, and that there is no wisdom in this age that can be attained, but that we would seek you, that we would seek your face. Lord, that the cross is foolishness to the world. Lord, what we would see as true. God, and how we need to cling to the cross. Lord, that we would seek you as our refuge, as our strength. Lord, that there is no room, there is no nothing in which we can boast except you. God, that each day we would live more according to your will, that we would know your word, that we would not be deceived, that we would not boast. Lord, and we trust in you. It is in your name I pray. Amen.